This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. You rightfully have concerns that once the government starts down a path, it's very hard to change direction. It's not an adaptable, a quick on its feet, adaptable body. And that is true. And also, there are times in our history when that has not been true. And the New Deal is one of those times where let's try something. That sounds bananas. That's not going to work. We'll start trying. If it doesn't work, we'll change this, this, and this, and this, and this. And they were massively adaptable because they had to be because the crisis in front of them. If America is nothing else... Is it not people that dream big, who dream outside the framework of the rest of the world sees the problem, who says, yeah, well, that's the way everybody else did it. We're going to try something completely new. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, everyone. On today's episode, we will be talking about the new national emergency. Beth, have you heard anything about this? Just a little bit, just here and there. You know, it's spotty. Some murmurings, a little murmuring. In our main segment, we'll be sharing our opinions on the Green New Deal. If you have not listened to our attempted a fact-based primer of the Green New Deal on Friday, go back and listen to the five things you need to know about the Green New Deal, because today we're going to be sharing our thoughts and reflections on this new proposal. And then to close out, we'll be sharing what's on our mind outside politics. Before we get started, we wanted to share we had a wonderful conversation with Kirby Green on the Sharpen podcast. This is a podcast about young professionals, so we really honed in on our advice about having hard conversations, especially in a professional environment. We've been on Sharpen before. It's a great podcast. So the link is in the show notes. Go check out our conversation with Kirby on Sharpen. Do you mind if I give you just a little bit of background on the National Emergencies Act of 1976, Sarah, because I sort of geeked out about this this weekend? Not at all. Okay. Interestingly, the act under which President Trump has declared a national emergency was passed in order to scale back executive power. Ha! Because before that, there were all kinds of different laws where Congress said, depending on what's going on, here's what the president can do. And it was out of control. So in 1976, Congress passes the National Emergencies Act. And a big part of it was to just end all of the existing emergencies and enumerate what happens and put a process in place. So bananas, part of this, the statute does not define emergency. There is that seems important. Nothing. And every statutory scheme, you know, begins with definitions. Usually this one has no definition of emergency, but it says if the president declares a state of emergency, here are 136 things that could be done. 13 of these are such a big deal that we still need a declaration from Congress, but the rest can just be done on executive authority. Now, the president has to specify which powers he is activating and notify Congress. So it's not like emergency declaration. I have all 136 tools at my disposal. He has to say, this is what I am going to do under the act. Congress can undo this declaration, as you've probably heard, by a joint resolution that the president either signs or vetoes, and then Congress can override the veto. And here's another important thing. If the House passes a resolution, which is likely now, right, we have a Democratic House, the Senate must bring the resolution to a floor vote within 18 days. So Mitch McConnell cannot prevent the Senate from voting on a resolution to undo this emergency declaration if the House passes it. Hallelujah. Yes. Okay, so past emergencies. There have been 59 declared since this act. We're still in about 30-ish of them. Most of them have to do with sanctioning other countries, especially related to terror issues. So something happens and we say, we're going to put tariffs in place because of this. We're going to cease diplomatic relations because of this. That's the kind of activity that is typically undertaken under the Emergencies Act. It does allow the president to authorize military construction projects using existing defense appropriations, but we have never had an emergency declared under this act where a president asks Congress for money for something. Congress expressly says no or expressly says not that much. And then the president declares an emergency to reappropriate funds that Congress has designated for other things. 
So there are a bunch of legal questions here. One of them is, who has standing to challenge the president about this? Can Congress have standing? If I'm a contractor on a project and money's being taken from that project for the wall, do I have standing? If my property is going to be seized at the border through eminent domain for the wall, do I have standing? It's unclear. Next, is this a proper exercise of authority under the National Emergencies Act? Especially because our policing of the border is usually done by civilians. It's not a military exercise. So maybe this isn't military construction. That's a way that this could go down. And then the third question, I think, is whether this is constitutional, since the Constitution specifically says that Congress has the power to decide how we spend money. And I think it's just clearly not. But I have strong feelings about the proper allocation of power among our three branches that are not shared by everyone. Mm-hmm. Look, it's been a long time since I studied constitutional law, but it's a very different question when you go before the Supreme Court and you say, is this a violation of my clearly articulated powers regarding immigration and the Constitution? And am I violating powers Congress expressly gave me? You know what I mean? Like, I just those are different questions. They're a different level of analysis. I think it's a much higher hurdle to say, I'm going to end run around Congress, this power that Congress gave me. Is that cool? Versus I've pushed hard against this clearly articulated constitutional power for the executive branch. Like, I think he's treating them like they're the same. They're not the same. I agree with that. I also just think it's important to recognize that this act doesn't mean emergency necessarily the way we think of it. So Mm -hmm. we've had a lot of fun on Twitter with pictures of the president and his golf course, like, hey, live look at the emergency. Well, that was in terribly poor taste. And I have problems with it for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the cost to American taxpayers of having him travel in this way in a secure way. Also, side note, no one should ever wear that much khaki. Thank you. There have been emergencies declared under this act that aren't like the sky is falling here in the United States. You know, 9-11 is an outlier in the list of emergencies that have been declared, not a representative example. Lots of Mm -hmm. things happen across the globe that trigger the president's powers under this act that aren't like we're all on a five alarm fire. So that's not really the question. I think more important to the legal analysis of whether this is an emergency or not are, as usual, the president's actual comments about it, where he says, I didn't have to do this. And I don't Mm -hmm. know how a court is going to look at that and say, well, that seems like a good use of extraordinary executive power. When you said, I don't have to do this, I'm just choosing to do it this way. Right. I think it's going to go down. I think it's going to be a total waste of everybody's time, energy, and money. It's frustrating. We have actual problems and issues that need to be solved. And even if you define the border as one of them, this is not the way to solve it. I think it should go down by a vote of Congress. If you are a Republican in Congress who believes that this is a proper use of the National Emergencies Act, you should not run for your seat again because you clearly don't believe your body has any responsibility or any power. Mm -hmm. This is such an erosion of the power of the legislature. And I don't think we ought to put people in the legislature who who view its role so flippantly. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think that we put people in the legislature all the time that view their role solely as politically. They don't have views about the role of government. They might articulate some when it's politically useful, but their role there is political solely and completely. It's almost not representative. This is what I'm coming around to. They don't see their role as representative. They don't see their role as even a trustee of our government and the future of our country. They see their role as solely and completely political. Well, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't either, sister, but that's the reality. I don't think it should be that way. And look, I mean, I what I think should happen here is Congress should do the joint resolution and then Congress should get to work on revising the National Emergencies Act, because this still seems like an extraordinary amount of power to transfer to an executive. And I think a definition of emergency from Congress would be really helpful here. Well, speaking of the role of the legislature, we wanted to talk about what's going on in Kentucky with some recent gun legislation. Not only in Kentucky, but across the country, the National Rifle Mm -hmm. Association is interested in ending requirements for concealed carry. They say you shouldn't have to have a permit to cover. Permitless carry. Everybody, just do it. Just go for it. Carry a gun hidden in the public with absolutely no legal requirements. It's going to be awesome. Strangely, Kentucky's Senate voted to pass a bill ending permits for concealed carry on the one-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting. I'm not really sure what kind of thought process went into that. Ten states already have laws like this, and the NRA is pushing them hard. And proponents of this legislation say, look, you can already carry a gun openly in Kentucky without a permit. Why do you need a permit to put a coat on? You know, that's the quote Mm -hmm. that is being issued from people who are in favor of this bill. I don't think the distinction is a distinction without a difference to say a open carry gun and a hidden gun. I do think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I agree with you. Lots of things in the law have an element of notice in them, right? Because we behave differently when we have notice of certain facts than when we don't. And so I think having notice of someone in possession of a weapon creates a different set of responsibilities than someone walking around and we don't have notice. And there are really not just philosophical differences, but because the NRA has been pushing this type of legislation, we can see the effects of it across the nation. Important side note, 88% of Americans think you should get a permit before carrying a concealed handgun. 88%. It's not like this is a very controversial requirement. So 2003, Alaska became the first state to enact permitless carry legislation. Since 2003, the rate of aggravated assaults committed with a firearm in the state has increased 82 percent, 82%. Arizona enacted this legislation in 2010. Their rate of aggravated assaults committed with a firearm increased 39%. So there are effects of removing these type of requirements. You get more violent criminals with guns. You get less firearms training because in Kentucky you had to take a class to make sure you knew the safety requirements. I had somebody comment on my Facebook page that said, like, I wanted to do it. I went through the requirements and thought, like, oh, I'm not... I don't have what's required to be able to use my gun in a quick situation like I thought. Like, it gave them a sense of the seriousness of carrying a weapon. And so, I mean, that's going to all be lost now. I wanted to mention one more thing before we move on. I'm being a little bit of an evangelist about this today because I think it's really important and it's not getting enough attention in the United States. India and Pakistan, things are getting very tense between those two countries. A terrorist group based in Pakistan did a suicide bombing that killed about 40 Indian 
soldiers last Thursday. And there has been diplomatic retaliation since then. India brought home its diplomats. Pakistan brought home its diplomats. India raised tariffs on Pakistani goods. On Monday of this week, there was a gunfight in Kashmir, which is the disputed territory between the two countries, and about seven more people died. This is all happening against a backdrop of a $20 billion investment in Pakistan from Saudi Arabia. And I just think that this is a part of the world we don't understand well, but Kashmir has regions controlled by India and Pakistan and China. And I feel like we are just inching up to a conflict that could touch so many countries around the globe. India and Pakistan are both nuclear countries. Mm. And I don't understand why we aren't trying to take some time to understand this conflict. I mean, I think it, well, I, do, I know why. It's because it's hard to understand and we would rather argue about a wall. But this is really important and illustrates the need for an administration that can focus in a very precise way on a very complex set of facts. John Bolton has said the United States is going to be supportive of India in its efforts to bring the terrorists to justice. That could get out of hand really fast. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying this is a very dangerous situation. All right, we're going to move on to compliment the other side. Beth, who would you like to compliment this week? I don't know that this is a compliment as much as a plea for people to focus their attention on something that's important. We received a message from a listener about a set of bills in Tennessee that are essentially trying to revise the Defense of Marriage Act. There are bills to keep people from adopting if if they are LGBT couples. There is a bill, like a constitutional amendment, about recognizing that our rights flow from God. There's just a lot going on in Tennessee. And as I started researching it, there's a lot going on all over the country in state legislators trying to limit LGBTQ rights. South Dakota has like 19 bills pending. One of them is being referenced as the Don't Say Trans bill, where they're trying to keep teachers from talking about gender issues until eighth grade because they think it's like something that impressionable kids can just up and decide that they're trans it it just it's a really ugly sad state of affairs and so i wanted to highlight two organizations that i think are doing the work around this there are many one is the tennessee equality project so if you're listening in tennessee and you want to know the status of these bills and what you can do to be involved here, the Tennessee Equality Project is a great place to start. There are organizations like this all across the country. Google your state and equality, see what comes up, and you can find out how to get involved. I get bulletins from Ohio all the time because I've been involved in these efforts there. So do that. (laughs) Get involved with your state's organization. I also want to make sure that you have heard of a group called the Mama Bears. And this came up because this listener who emailed us said it has been helpful to hear two Christian women be allies of the LGBT community. Mm, I love that. And the mama bears are exactly that. These are women who have been members of churches and have children come out as LGBTQ and have taken it upon themselves to love those children and support them and then reach beyond their own families. So I first heard about the Mama Bears on another podcast and they were like developing a network to go walk people down the aisle in weddings when their own parents wouldn't do that. 
Oh, that makes me want to cry. So it's incredible work that they're doing. We'll put a link to an article about them in the show notes. It is a closed Facebook group, and you can understand why. But there are lots of ways to find out more and to become involved if this is your situation. And if you're listening and you're a part of the Mama Bears, thank you. We would love to talk mm-hmm. with you about your experience and your work sometime. And just to everyone, I want to ask to keep an eye on these issues. If this tugs at your heart like it does mine, we have got to stop treating our fellow human beings like they're less than human. And I just, it kills me that there are so many laws being proposed right now at the state level that that do that, that treat our fellow human beings like they're less than human. I think it's a really important reminder that it is tempting to see the work of civil rights regarding the LGBT community as complete. And that is not the case. And in the same way with gender issues and with racial issues, you have to channel your inner Mad-Eye Moody for all my Harry Potter fans. This is still true. You have to be ever vigilant, ever vigilant when it comes to these issues. It's also a reminder that who you elect to represent you in your state matters a lot. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court matters. Congress matters. The president matters. We're pretty good at caring about those things. We are not very good at caring about who we elect in our states. And this kind of stuff gets done all the time. Hopefully a lot of these bills just die in committee, but we're not good at paying attention at this level. And that's why I really encourage you to find an organization in your state so you can pay attention at this level. Well, I wanted to compliment former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld who announced on Friday that he is going to pursue a primary challenge in the Republican Party to President Trump. He's gotten a lot of pushback from the party itself, and he's making sort of no apologies about the fact he'll be pursuing the primaries that are open that allow non-Republicans to vote. But he had some really strong words for the president, and he's been a constant critic of the president. And I think it's important that this president in particular have a primary challenge. So good job, Mr. Weld. Good job. I hope you open the floodgates to more challengers. I could not agree more strongly with that. Godspeed, Bill Weld. You got a supporter right here. Next up, we are going to talk about our opinions about the Green New Deal. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, 
is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. On Friday, we went over the top five things you needed to know about the Green New Deal, which is on the lips of every person in Washington, D.C. and around the country. It's it's a hot topic is what I'm saying. So we wanted to dive into how we feel about the Green New Deal more than just sharing information about it on today's episode. Beth has lots of concerns, so many she categorized them. (laughs) Well, let's start with our areas of agreement. Because there are many, and I think a a risk in any conversation like that is that you sort of lose the plot, right? You get hung up on specifics and lose the essential building blocks of agreement. And we have that. We both agree that climate change is important, that it is urgent, that there are things we must do about it, that there are things the federal government must do about it. So from that foundation, Yes, I have a lot of problems with the Green New Deal, but I don't want to get lost in this conversation. I am not opposed to action on climate change, and I am not opposed to the sense of urgency fueling the Green New Deal about climate change. So here's my question, though. Are we going to talk about this as a vision statement? Are we going to talk about this as a policy proposal? Well, I think it's both in that what's the point of it being passed as a resolution even a non-binding one, if it isn't intended to create policy objectives, right? I mean, part of my fundamental issue here is what what is this and why are you doing it this way? If this was a DNC strategy document, that would make a lot more sense to me than a non-binding resolution. For me, what this is and why I like it as a person who 
constantly questions the status quo is this is a statement of the current status quo regarding politics, our economy, and particularly climate change is not working. It's not working. We are not changing almost at all, and we are certainly not changing fast enough to prevent the dire consequences described in the IPCC report. So for me, you know, that appeals to me as a person who thinks, channeling my inner Dr. Phil, is anything working for us right now? Are we happy with where we are, where we're heading? So, you know, I really like that part of it. I think what it is, it is an attempt to pull the Democratic Party in particular, but the national conversation itself to the left after years of the Republican Party successfully pulling the nation and our politics to the right. I think it it's setting it's like a reset on the conversation on what we're trying to get from our government, what we want our government to do, how we wanted to address the changes in our economy and the threat of climate change. It feels like a reset button. It just feels like a reset button on the conversation around all these areas and the policy concerning them. And there are parts of that conversation that I strongly agree with. I also feel very concerned that the overall driving force is that everything's terrible in America. How's it working for us? There are some really troubling issues in our country, from healthcare to income inequality to opioid addiction. We got lots of issues. Also, we are still a free, prosperous nation, a secure nation. We haven't been attacked since September 11th. That's remarkable. I'm shocked that we haven't been attacked since September 11th. Do we have lots of problems to solve? Absolutely. But this kind of dramatic reordering of what the federal government is here to do, I think, is ill-advised. I think it needs to make progress incrementally. But I am concerned that we are looking to countries in Europe that I respect and admire but that are so different from the United States without recognizing that part of the reason the United States is so powerful in the world as such a young country is because we have governed ourselves differently from those states. So I'm I'm just struggling with how's that working for us all thumbs down in a way that neat that it's kind of like the president's national emergency. Now don't email me. I understand the difference between these two things. But what I'm saying is there's kind of this this comparison right now. Climate change is a real emergency. The emergency at the border is a false emergency. Right. But the Green New Deal isn't just about climate change. It's about all kinds of things. It's about our entire socioeconomic structure. We have issues there. We have work to do. Yes. But I don't think we want to go down this extraordinary path of completely abandoning our understanding of capitalism under the guise of climate change, which I think deserves real attention and prioritization in our government. We spoke this weekend at a sorority meeting, and I described the complementary styles of our personalities as I run hot. Like, I just run hot. That's who I am. It's fine. And so this might be more of a reflection of my personality. I don't think it necessarily is, but I don't, you know, I I see not only the state of our country, but the conversations we've had over the last two years, and I don't see issues. 
I see fundamental breakdown in the systems running our country and our society. I see systems that are breaking, crumbling, just cannot shoulder the weight of our new world that are not up for the challenge of ever-increasing technology, be it as simple as social media or as complex as artificial intelligence, that are not up for the challenges presented in an ever-changing economy, especially since the, the 2008 financial crisis. I don't know if we've successfully rebuilt from that in the way that we should to address another crisis of that magnitude. I just, I look around and I think our systems are dated. They were built for the 20th century and we don't live in that century anymore. And that's why we have ever increasing income inequality, which we, you know, we've discussed in the past. I see this as an existential threat to our democracy, not simply a, you know, an issue that we need to pay attention to. It's not that I think, you know, everything is, everything is lost, but you know, for me in this moment in American history, when I look at the the struggles that I see among our different systems, be it public education, college education, health care, income inequality, housing, affordable housing, energy policy, tech, privacy, I see systems that just aren't up for it. And I see Donald Trump's presidency as a giant red flag that we need a reset that it's not working, and that there are a lot of things at risk here. And what I so appreciate about the Green New Deal is that it does feel like a reset. And sometimes, you know, I I kept thinking about FDR when I was reading the Leadership in Turbulent Times and with the New Deal, and it was just sometimes in a crisis, and I mean, maybe that's what we're really discussing, are we in a crisis or not, is we need to just start. We need to think big and we need to start trying. You rightfully have concerns that once the government starts down a path, it's very hard to change direction. It's not an adaptable, a a quick on its feet, adaptable body. And that is true. And also there are times in our history when that has not been true. And the New Deal is one of those times where let's try something. That sounds bananas. That's not going to work. We'll start trying. If it doesn't work, we'll change this, this, and this, and this, and this. And they were massively adaptable because they had to be because the crisis in front of them. And some of those programs lasted when they shouldn't have, but some of those programs lasted for the lifetime that they were meant to last. And I just, I don't like the idea that with something as big as climate change and as big as income inequality, everybody, the reaction seems to be like, that's never going to happen. Well, what's the alternative? I mean, maybe, maybe it won't, maybe it won't work, but let's keep trying. If America is nothing else, is it not people that dream big, who dream outside the framework of the rest of the world sees the problem, who says, yeah, well, that's the way everybody else did it. We're going to try something completely new. And I don't I don't read the Green New Deal as let's go be Denmark. That's not how it reads to me, because I do think we have we are uniquely qualified and uniquely positioned to rethink all these things. I mean, we we've done it in the past. We have rethought the role of government. Ronald Reagan rethought the role of government and changed things dramatically. And so, I mean, it's not like we don't have even recent history at looking at this. Where I sit now, 
his rethinking didn't work out so great. And I want to rethink it again. I think every generation sort of has the ability and the right to do that. And I'm ready. Here's where my agreement with you breaks down. I think that you are right about the urgent need to address many things in our society. I think addressing it through a document that puts on the Congress the responsibility for not only rethinking the role of the federal government, but rethinking the building blocks of our economy and changes that will impact our everyday life which is what is needed. I believe in changes that will impact our everyday life around climate change. All of those things together through the body of the federal government, which I do believe can do some wonderful things, but it can't do all the things. I think that is misguided. And I think putting these out in a document that is going to force Democratic legislators to say, I'm in for all of this, When the country is not there as a whole, I know I can spend five minutes on Twitter every day and be lectured about how actually the country is there, except for the idiots. Okay, if that's how you feel, everything that you want the government to do through this document is premised on people who agree with you about all of this being in charge and not just being in charge for the next round of elections, but for 10, 20, 30 years, because that's how long it's going to take to get things done. Now, if the whole purpose here is a shift in the conversation, cool, let's do that. But I don't think it's a good idea for the federal government to take ownership of every one of these problems when a lot of these problems depend on things that are rapidly changing. Our ability to harness the technology necessary to going to a zero carbon footprint society is not here yet. We can't do this in 10 years where we are today. That could change. But if you start pointing our federal bureaucracy down that path without some malleability to go with it, that's a problem. That's why I think sometimes it is better to tackle these giant problems in a small way that you can scale up instead of a gigantic way that you try to scale down. And here's here's a like practical life example of why I feel this way. I worked on policy for a law firm that had offices in six Midwestern cities. Okay? Those cities are drastically different from one another in the minds of the people who live there. And if you are looking at the United States as a whole, they are very, very similar cities. The number of policies that worked well in all six offices is approximately zero. There were different cultures. There were different priorities. There was different infrastructure to support the initiatives we were running. And this is just in the context of a law firm. So I look at what is being proposed in the Green New Deal, and I hear the conversation around it and think, we honestly believe that from California to Maine, we have ideas that are going to work across the United States on climate change, income inequality, and like racial, socioeconomic, and gender equality. I think that's bananas. And it's not that we don't try. I think that this does feel good. It does feel like we're trying to do something. And I am for doing something, but I'm for doing something step by step in ways that have some chance at moving us forward. And I think starting with climate is the right thing to do. Now, if you want to start with climate and do it intentionally through federal contractors by prioritizing businesses that are minority owned, awesome. You know, there are ways to encompass some of the other policy objectives in what you're doing. 
But I think this thing is just a behemoth that that doesn't make sense for where we are as a country, especially given that this isn't the only thing we have to think about as a country. If we focus on the Green New Deal and try to do what it says we're going to do in 10 years, we're going to have to become an isolationist country, right? I don't know how we participate in the world and so drastically reorder ourselves around these objectives. The part I struggle with and I'm not really sure how I feel is I do believe it is a vision statement. I believe that it is meant to reset the conversation and set new priorities. And I don't have any problem with that. There is a part of me that says, yes, hard reset. Let's just let's just shake things up and have a different conversation. And there is a part of me, the pragmatic part of me that understands deeply the political calculations here. You know, do we want to have this albatross hanging around our nominee for president? Do we want to scare people and think any conversation about income inequality or any conversation about climate change is, you know, a call for green socialism? So, I, you know, I, I can see both sides. I don't know the answer. I don't even know exactly how I feel about it because I think both things are true. I think we need a reset and I think it can be dangerous politically. But I just don't we're not nothing's happening. So I just that's where I just keep coming back down to it is, yeah, I would like to have a really politically pragmatic conversation about carbon tax. But even the most incremental politically pragmatic approach isn't going to happen. In our current environment. So what exactly is the harm in having a bold statement to at least shake everybody up and remind everyone that climate change is happening and we should probably do something about it? I want to just argue that it it's not that nothing's happening. It's that not enough is happening fast enough. Some things are happening. We see things like Google wanting to locate its data centers near renewable energy sources. We see green rooftops on buildings. We see buildings being designed with greener footprints. We see cities trying to build better transportation systems. There are things happening. It's not a federal item. There are things that we can learn from those programs that have succeeded and the ones that have failed. Cincinnati put in a streetcar a couple of years ago trying to think about how can we be a greener city? How can we have better transportation It has not been very successful, and that was an important learning. That doesn't mean that we were wrong to try. It means good thing that we failed kind of on a small scale before we put streetcars all over the greater Cincinnati area that people weren't going to ride on, you know? So there's some good in that learning. Now, do we need bigger, bolder initiatives than that on a federal level? Yes. I would love to see the next president put us back in the Paris Agreement, you know, get us back in the international community having these conversations. I would love to see a summit of all of the governors of the country to meet with Congress people, to meet with the executive branches, to meet with the military, where I think there is a huge opportunity not only to be greener, but to be more fiscally responsible and more effective in conflict, which we'll talk about in a future episode. I think we need action on this stuff. But I think we need to get everybody at the table around that action, not just put out, you know, a 15 page document that people who are in a very leading progressive role 
devise a sort of their wish list for everything. This document reminds me of what happens when a handful of people from an organization go away on retreat and they get really excited about their ideas and they put together a vision and they come back and everybody says, here are the thousands of things you didn't think about when you put this together. That can be a really valuable exercise. It doesn't mean it was wasted time. This is this doesn't have to be a wasted document. But man, like I hated reading that quote. You've probably seen this quote a hundred times too, Sarah, where one of the think tank guys was like, the Green New Deal train is here. And if you're not on board, then choo-choo, motherfucker, we're going right past you. You know, like that is that is not where we need to be in this conversation. That is not going to spur real action forward. And that is the stuff of Grover Norquist, who has basically ruined the Republican Party by forcing everybody to sign on for no new taxes for any reason. You know, we don't we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we can't adapt and really represent our constituents and make good decisions based on the information and the technology and the demands available to us at any given time. But don't people like AOC add to the party? Don't you need people like that? Don't you need the activist wing of the party so that you give the moderates a chance to go, see, they wanted this, but we got this. You're going to have to be happy with it. I mean, isn't this a negotiation tactic in its own to overshoot the mark that you actually want? Isn't there a role for that for people like that at the party? I mean, I don't I don't want the Democratic Party to be a table full of moderates. That doesn't mean I don't want moderates, but I don't think anybody served, in, including Congress itself, with everybody coming ready to be pragmatic moderates. I do think there are places in our government and in the parties for more extreme activist people. I think that's I'm not saying this shouldn't exist. I'm saying Congress shouldn't pass it. Even as a non-binding resolution? Even as a non-binding resolution, I would vote hard against this because I think it's that bananas. But I am scarred by the Tea Party experience. I would have said a few years ago, absolutely. And I would have said the Tea Party is this really valuable idea about saying, hey, Republicans, you actually haven't been fiscally conservative. By the way, Republicans, you've exploded the national debt. And that's another concern I have about the Green New Deal. We have exploded the national debt. Republicans have done that. Endless wars have done that. Fighting for bigger weapons and greater technology in our military has done that. And I feel like we're this Jenga tower, and I don't know how much more we can pile on top before the thing starts to fall over in ways that become a very immediate existential threat to our democracy. So, yes, I love visionaries. I love people who push our thinking. I am nervous when those folks start to say, this is now going to be our party, because I have experienced my party pretty well ceasing to exist because of those extreme voices. Now I'm going to get a hundred emails explaining to me that the difference here is that AOC is right and the Tea Partiers were wrong. (laughs) And I understand that people have that perspective, but listen up, the Tea Party people would have said they were right too. And they were right about the debt. They were right about Republicans not being fiscally responsible. But being right doesn't make you effective. And it also doesn't make the country agree with you. And we've got to figure our way out around that. And again, I just want to remind everybody I believe climate change is an emergency and we should do something about it. I just think this is not the right blueprint for that. I agree with you. I don't like the path the Tea Party has taken either, but they have been successful. And when you talk about the complexity of the United States, is there a path forward in which we convince everybody? Like, I'm not sure there is for exactly the reasons you talked about. 
Like, you can't get three Midwestern cities to agree on some stuff. How are you going to get the entire United States to agree? I mean, if we had sat around and waited for everybody to be on board with and to convince everybody and not upset anybody about integration, it never happened. Like, I, I struggle with this balance, too. I don't know the point in which we say, yes, there needs to be a conversation. Yes, everybody's concerns need to be heard. No, nobody is wrong. You know, their concerns are valid. And at the same time, it's time to get on board. Like, I don't, you know, I think it usually happens because our hands have been forced because of a crisis. And I don't want to get to that point with climate change for my kids' sake. I mean, I think we're already there with climate change in some ways. It is a crisis. I think it is a crisis. And I don't think everybody has to be on board about the solutions to that crisis for action to happen. The person who I could imagine being most upset about the Green New Deal is Nancy Pelosi, because I think she is very good at knowing when she's going to push and when we've gone too far. You know, she keeps running elections on health care because she understands that there have been steps to address health care, that those steps have had some successes and some failures that they need to keep being worked on. And we're going to get there and we're going to get there step by step by step. The conversation has moved on health care from where it was at the beginning of the ACA fight. It just takes a little bit of time. And that has been in the realm of things a little bit of time. And in some ways, some of the technology that we need to really make big picture climate impact, we've we've got some time for that to continue to develop. So I think this Congress can do lots of things on climate change. I don't think they should be doing them under a banner that can be branded somewhat fairly as at least socialist inspired in a way that just alienates people. Now, if you're, you know, if you're listening to this thinking, well, like, that's just semantics, fine. But like, tons of what happens in politics is just semantics. So you have to kind of step back and say, how could we talk about this reasonably? I think a lot of the country recognizes that our climate at least needs to be stabilized. You know, if you're carrying around baggage about global warming, let's have conversations about national disasters and about Do we want to continue to pay the cleanup cost of natural disasters or do we want to get in front of natural disasters? And here are some ways that we might be able to do that. Can't eliminate them, but here are some things that we can do to mitigate them. Here are some things we can do to start moving things in a different direction. I think we can have very sensible conversations that make really big impact on climate change, even while President Trump is still in office. What bothers me most about the Green New Deal is that I think it is counterproductive to that effort because it goes so far away from climate policy. That's the part I agree with. I don't think we address climate change in real and sustainable ways without fundamental changes to our economy. And fundamental changes in our economy inevitably mean that some people get left behind. And what I appreciate the most about the Green New Deal which didn't happen when we transitioned from an industrial economy, is it at least acknowledges that and puts a plan in place and says, we're going to change some stuff. People are going to get left behind. We don't want anybody without health care, without a job, without a sustainable living, because we didn't do that with the transition to a technological economy. People got left behind and we just said, sorry, hope you're going to go on disability and it works out for you. And at least this is an attempt to say, We don't make dramatic changes, which we need to address the threat that is climate change without leaving certain groups in our economy behind. So what's our plan for that? 
Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Imagine these policies these ideas about policy all coming to fruition and policies are in place that that have enacted universal health care, free college, some kind of basic income, you know, things that address every aspect of what's in the Green New Deal. And then you have, as you would at some point, just looking at the trajectory of history, 
uh, Congress unwilling to fund that stuff, an administration that bureaucratically tries to undercut it. This is not the stuff of fiction, right? We've watched a lot of this. A lot of the Obama administration's work on climate change has been systematically eroded bureaucratically and quietly by the Trump administration, right? And so the more control that is being harnessed by the federal government, yes, there is potential upside. There is also serious risk that at some point that stuff is used in really damaging ways. When you think about our systems breaking down, as you talked about at the beginning of this conversation, yes, they are. Like Trump is a sign of that. But also, I can imagine scenarios where the past two years could have been much, much worse in weaker countries, right? Our institutions are strong enough that they have been holding a lot of weight over the past two years. And that doesn't mean I think everything's fine. I do not. But I also think that we've got some good things here that we do want to hold on to in the course of trying to make positive changes. And so when you think about enacting Green New Deal type policies, what you're saying is not just, okay, the federal government is going to set up, you know, 600,000 new jobs to administer a universal health care system. You're talking a whole lot about government contracts given to private companies, Someone is still going to be left behind in that process, and there's going to be a whole lot more control in the hands of people who we just talked about. Don't think about their responsibilities under our Constitution and to their constituents. They just think about their next election, and I think those are really important considerations. That is not a the government should do nothing argument. I don't want to have this conversation in terms of like it's zero or a hundred, and I know that you don't either. It is just saying There is a role for the gas and the brakes in this conversation because as you use the power of the federal government, you introduce a lot of risk being exercised by a very powerful set of human beings who are going to have a bunch of different kinds of motivations as they exercise that power. No, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, I think that the concerns in so many ways that I have about the markets and basically our our corporate economy can be reflected in big government. And that is something I've learned over the last two years. I get that. I just don't know. I just don't know any other answer. I don't think the private sector is going to get it done. I think they can be a piece of it. I don't think we can depend on a state-by-state solution because I think it has to be comprehensive across the country. And so I just don't I understand all the risks, and I think that we should pay careful and close attention to those. I don't know any other way because the tragedy of the commons is it's always going to be somebody else's problem until somebody steps up and says, it's everybody's problem and we're going to fix it now. I think states have a more important role to play than I think that you believe that they do. And my reasoning for that is because of the geography, the natural resources, the climate, state by state. And we have such a big, diverse country. Can we have a governing national philosophy about climate change? Could we have some kind of exciting, like, race to see which states are going to become the greenest fastest. I think that would be awesome. I think there there is so much potential in using the differences among states to drive us forward. I get I do- that. But what about the ones who don't want to participate at all? Every program I've ever been a part of says you start with the early adopters and then you bring people along and you deal with the laggards last. And I understand that that is a risk when we are all contributing on the globe 
to what happens with the climate. I still think it is the best, most effective way to get there and the way that ultimately brings more people along faster than what feels to me like a real cram down approach. The concern is not only the people who are contributing to climate change and the fact that if we do a state by state approach like that, they are continuing to basically negate lots of the good work and the cost and the sacrifices made by other states. But it's also the fact that climate change is not going to exercise itself equally with regards to natural disasters across the country. And so why in a universe in which we're all paying out billions and billions of dollars to a state's affected by hurricanes, should we then allow those states to completely ignore their contribution to the problem and how to mitigate the damages? That seems like a policy initiative worth exploring to me. What do we expect of states in terms of carbon footprint over a certain period of time or in terms of certain emission standards over a period of time in order to have access to federal funding in natural disaster incidents? I think there are lots of things that we can do here and lots of places where you and I could sit down and start working on policies and agree on how the federal government should approach this. I just don't think the Green New Deal moves that forward. And I get that you think it kind of lights a fire under us so that we do that. In that way, I think there is something successful about prompting the conversation, even though I would vote against it. I mean, real talk, this is the best conversation we've had about climate change, (laughs) all prompted by the Green New Deal. Well, I think that is a perfect note to end on. What's on your mind outside politics, Beth? I might have found the right balance of thoughtful television mixed with entertaining bubblegum that I can handle in the form of Netflix's Umbrella Academy. Have you watched it? What's that? Okay. Umbrella Academy is about a family of children, all of whom were born in the 80s on the same day at the same time to women who were not pregnant. And this zany billionaire goes and buys seven of the children. There were 12. And this billionaire buys seven of these kids and raises them as his own and cultivates their superpowers. And it's a disaster. His family is totally dysfunctional. And so in the first episode, you meet the children because he has passed away. And it's the first time that they've come together in a long time. And it's about what happens from there. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So they were born to people who weren't pregnant because they have superpowers. Correct. Got it. The music in it is so fun and fantastic. And a lot of it is kind of 80s, 90s. Like, I think We're Alone Now makes an appearance in the the pilot episode. Like, it's really, it's really fun to watch. But there are also, there's a lot of violence. Don't sit down and watch this with your kids. Jane Silvers will not be watching Umbrella Academy. And there's drug use and there are some really interesting questions about what makes a family and what role technology has to play in our society, especially artificial intelligence. Like it's a very intellectual show, but it's also superheroes and therefore fun. Interesting. I would like to check that out. Also, I like Ellen Page, so I just realized she was in it. Yes. And she's she is a very fascinating character because she does not have superpowers and is one of these kids. What? Yes. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, I'll have to check it out. Can I tell you one more thing that's on my mind outside of politics? Mm -hmm. I just bought some bamboo paper towels. 
that are reusable. They're amazing. JC, our friend and listener, recommended that I buy these paper towels because I have been trying to eliminate, you know, as much as possible in my house. So these things, you tear them off. They feel like paper towels. You use them like paper towels, except they're a little bit stronger and more absorbent. And then you can wash them each 100 times and use them again. It's incredible. Okay, so it's not it's not just a dish towel. No, it feels like a paper towel. It's so much better than a dish towel for cleaning like countertops and in your sink and in little places that are hard to reach. Everything you need a paper towel for, these do really, really well. And then you wash them and you use them again. It's phenomenal. Okay, I'm going to need a link to that. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. So I am thinking about makeup. Thanks to the inspiration of the fabulous Jamie Golden from the podcast. I just started thinking more about my makeup situation. For one, I had this this cream blush I've been using for approximately four years that had just broken down. It was embarrassing. You can go see it on our stories. It was just an embarrassing situation. So I knew I needed new blush. But then I thought, I don't know, maybe I should look into some other things. And then I got sucked into Jamie's Instagram stories. And then I had this list a mile long of all these things I never tried before, like highlighter and setting spray and all this stuff. And so then I ended up basically getting rid of all my makeup, which was not a big lift because most of it I got in free or it was several years old, and buying all new foundation and concealer, highlighter, blush, eyeshadow, eyeliner. I mean, I went all in. Now, they're all drugstore brands because I can't afford to invest in all new makeup at the beauty counter. But I'm going to start sort of scaling up. And it's been intimidating, but really fun. Basically, here's a fun fact. You can search YouTube for whatever product you just purchased, and some nice lady will show you how to use it. That's the first thing. And the products themselves have just gotten so much better than the last time I was really into makeup. So I've been really, I've been, it's been fun. It's been fun. Ever since I've been doing the news briefs on Instagram every morning, I have to look at my face. I thought maybe I should, should scale up my, my makeup a little bit. And it's also adds some nice impetus to like get up and get dressed like a real person and put, and put a face on as my grandma used to say. And that's just been fun. I've been really fun. I went to Ulta, which I haven't been since they opened their doors. And I wrote a blog post about them back in like 2010. And I've made some purchases at CVS. And it's just, it's been fun. I'm having fun with it. I really am. Do you feel like, okay, I've got my new routine? Or do you feel like, oh, I enjoy this so much that I want to have lots of different eyeshadow choices, lots of different lipstick colors? Like what, what camp do you fall in on that? I think I might be somewhere in between. I'm not going to just, because I got a palette. I got an eyeshadow palette. So there's not really one routine because there's like 16 colors. So I can always have lots of choices within that. I like lipstick enough. I'm down for like more choices. So somewhere in between, I'm not going to have the spread Jamie has on her bathroom counter, which is impressive. Um, Also, because there are still other things I really want to spend a majority of my money on. But... I'm not going to also not going to do my makeup the same every time. And I am going to play around and probably get some more options. It's probably not just going to be color options, but there's also different products you can use for like how long you need it to be on your face. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think it might be a little bit of all that. Yeah, I love all of Revlon's Color Stay products. And I use 
almost exclusively Revlon stuff because I really like that photo finish color stay situation. And I do have kind of a routine and this is the way I do my makeup no matter where I'm going. Sometimes I'll put it on a little thicker than other times, but I kind of like knowing this is what I'm doing. I enjoy makeup. We got a question from a listener after you did a bunch of stories about, can you just talk about makeup because it's so controversial among women? To me, there's no controversy. If you don't want to wear it, I think you are Mm -hmm. awesome. If you want to wear a tiny bit, beautiful. If you want to wear tons and tons and tons every time you go to the grocery store, I'm here for it with you. I just think it's one of those things that like women have different interests and this is one that should be completely on the table for whatever direction your interests take you. I agree. You know, I always used to say if you want to, as a feminist, if you want to vacuum your house in high heels and pearls, go for it. Just don't tell me I have to. I'm all about it. If you enjoy it, that's fine. As long as you are aware that there's a billion dollar industry telling you that you need it and that it's fun and you're like you're checking yourself regularly I think that's great I mean it's just it's we're not nobody's an island I mean we're all participating in a system where people make a lot of money off people's interest in makeup now the best part of it is some of them are just independent youtubers so great I'm glad they're getting the clicks and the money but some of it is Revlon who is making Lots of money telling everybody this is the stuff they need. So I think just as long as you keep it in check and like this is a want, not a need, and it makes me happy or it doesn't, I think that's all good. Now, skincare, on the other hand, I do feel very passionately that people should be participating because <laughs> I think it's important to take care of your skin. It is the biggest organ on your body, but that's probably a different conversation. I think it probably is. And thank you all so much for joining <laughs> us for this one. We will be back in your ears on The Nuanced Life on Wednesday. We're going to talk about the fact that we were in a sorority because I think that takes some folks by surprise, makes other folks very excited. We're going to talk about that experience on The Nuanced Life. We'll be back here on Friday with a, I think, interview that is going to be very thought-provoking and comment-provoking with Noah Rothman, who has been everywhere promoting his new book, Unjust. So we will talk with him here on Friday and also do some more news. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.